visit rti at english.rti.org.tw. Thanks for being with us here today on Radio Taiwan International for today's English language feature programs. Coming up ahead this hour, we will have Stroke of Light, hosted by Jake Chen. That'll be followed by Eye on China with Natalie So, bringing us her weekly look at current affairs on the other side of the Taiwan Strait. And we will also have our weekly Mandarin language lesson in Chinese to go. But let's get the day started with Here in Taiwan. Welcome to Here in Taiwan this Thursday, November the 15th, 2018. I'm Charlie Storas, sitting in the host chair today, joined in the studio by Shirley Lin. Hi, Charlie. Hello, Shirley. And John Van Trieste. Hi there. Hello, John. Well, today we're going to be talking about Taiwan's longest suspension bridge. The suspension is killing us. Uh, the woman who found her late mother on Google Street View, and we'll hear about a man who's been arrested for stealing women's shoes. These stories and others coming right up. Okay, John, since uh, I can bear the suspense oh, no man. longer... Tell us all about Taiwan's longest suspension bridge. Is this uh, just uh, uh, coming into operation now? Well, it's been open since January 2018, but Taiwan News says that this is an up-and-coming tourist attraction. And I think we should make it clear that this is a pedestrian suspension bridge, not the kind that carries a motorway across a river or something like that. Uh, This is one very peculiarly Taiwanese cultural thing, I would say, that uh, people do go out of their way to see and walk across suspension bridges. Mm. Um, And uh, if you ever travel with a Taiwanese tour group, you're likely to get a full view of all of the local suspension bridges there. Like, it's a destination in and of itself. Um, Now, it's interesting, in uh, China in particular, glass bridges have become very mm. popular in recent years, especially over... Uh, gorgeous with a with a huge huge drop down right. below. Have, do we have any of those in Taiwan? We have sort of something like that. It's in Xiaolai, and it's really more of a glass precipice that doesn't go anywhere, and you have like a limited time on it. Mm. But uh, have you been on it? I have, and but these are much. I don't think they they're, they're, they have quite the adrenaline rush of that. They're okay, more, so we're looking um, for a, a milder kind of thrill. I here would with, say with a little bit more. Bridge. Maybe yeah. if you're afraid of heights, skip it. But uh, yeah, uh, it was open in January 2018, and it is in the Fuxing district of Taoyuan, which is a very mountainous area. Uh, I once asked a friend why Taiwan has so many of these bridges, and he said mm. because we have a lot of mountains to put them on. Mm. So. Mm. The good logic there, I sure. guess. Uh, it runs for 330 meters, uh, and it straddles the Dahan River, which is upstream of the Sherman Reservoir, which is a very big water, what would you call it, retaining area. It's important, I, I call think. call it a, a reservoir, it, in other words. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think of another word, but it, it uh, basically a lot of the Taoyuan's water comes from there. Mm. So uh, a big place, and it's replacing... 
an older one, which was more than 40 years old. So I guess it's about time for a change. A lot of these, another thing that strikes me as a bit odd about this love of suspension bridges is that they're constantly being knocked out by typhoons. I was in Hualien once and my guide was like, and there's another former suspension bridge and there's another former suspension bridge. And <laughs> they don't handle the weather here very well, but I, 40 years, there's a respectable career. And this is the new replacement. You have to, apparently, it's so popular that you have to make an online reservation beforehand just to visit it. Mm. Only, let's see, 2,800 visitors are allowed per day. So get in there fast. How many people are allowed on the bridge at any one time? I guess there's a, there's a limit for that as well, is there? Um, it says, it's not very clear about this, this article, but it does say that uh, the day is divided into 14 slots and 200 visitors are allowed on for each slot. Mm. Now, I don't know if that's one time or spread out over an hour or what. But uh, So it sounds like, like 200 is the upper limit of people you could mm. have on the bridge at one time. Well, mm. the fact that you have to make a reservation at least in like an hour beforehand, it's saying here, seems to indicate that people are going to visit the bridge. Uh, if bridges aren't quite your thing, you may still want to go check it out because there's a lot to do nearby as well. Uh, visitors are invited to try the local, uh, the foods of the local Atayal people who live in the mountains there, the indigenous people there. And uh, you can go, there's a hot spring that you can get a shuttle bus to. And also there's a Shanghai Shek's former residence there, which I've been to in this very lovely area, uh, very brisk sort of a uh, bit of a not quite sound of music but getting up towards that <laughs> sort of alpine mm. feel up there very nice and uh if you are the sort of person who feels a thrill every time you step onto a suspension bridge well you have 330 meters to enjoy here in Taoyuan. okay shirley before we move on to uh the uh, more frivolous uh, items, I suppose we could call them. Uh, let's uh, tell us about how uh, a computer is n- here in Taiwan has now been named the world's most powerful supercomputer. And I think the last one was was Chinese. And so, so it's a, it, it, is uh, that is that right? Don't uh-huh. get excited. Don't get excited. <laughs> okay, no, I'm okay, reading the see. title here. Okay. Well, we're talking about Taiwania Two, and it's ranked twentieth in the world in terms of. Uh, the highest rating for a Taiwan-made supercomputer. Okay, and it's uh, this ranking came out in November 2018 edition of the top 500 list. So we made it into the 20th out of 500, oh, I, okay. I guess. So we didn't we didn't jump straight ahead. Well. Yeah, yeah, but but Taiwania two also ranks as the seventh fastest supercomputer in Asia, trailing only two from China. Three from Japan and one from South Korea. Mm. So we're in the top so, bracket there. Yeah, we, we, we are. We are. This is really exciting. <laughs> so the 20th spot taken by Taiwania marks a quantum leap in performance <sighs> over its predecessor, <laughs> Taiwania, of course, which only ranked uh, 95th on the last year's top 500 list. That's still pretty That's impressive, jump, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is a huge jump, huge jump. So the two top spots on the list were taken by the U.S. China took the third and the fourth. And uh, Switzerland rounding out the top five. So what's the world's most powerful computer right now? This would be an American computer. I guess that's what it is. It says the top two spots were taken by the U.S., right? Uh, with the Computer Summit and Sierra. And then China took third and fourth, and then Switzerland rounded out the top five. Um, Taiwan had two computing capacity of nine quadrillion floating point operations per second. And uh, that only trails uh, supercomputers from the U.S., China, Switzerland, Japan, Germany, France, South Korea, and Italy. 
Taiwan Air Two received an ever uh, even higher ranking for energy efficiency,、oh. seizing tenth place on the Green Five Hundred list. Well, that's important. Yes, that is important, and it also consists of two hundred fifty-two nodes, each of which contains two CPUs and eight of the most advanced GPUs. And it's slated to be launched in the first half of next year. That's pretty fast. In addition to utilizing its cloud computing platform to offer fast computing capabilities, also large storage space and a secure network, it will become the largest data marketplace in the country, providing more immediate and convenient services to industry and、uh, the academics. Okay, so guys, have you ever used、uh, Google Street View? Have you ever used when you're using the Google Maps、uh, app, and then you know you can go to Street View and it'll show you sort of pictures that they've taken of the actual section of road that you're, yes, that you're looking at. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure you've probably looked at your house before, right? We've looked.、Uh, remember a couple of years ago, we all gathered around. Was it Andrew's computer? And we were laughing at the fact that、uh, there were certain people. I can't even remember now, but there were people who we recognized. Really? Yeah, we're like, oh, I wonder if any of us will ever get caught on. The, oh yeah, the really, really. Camera. I know. I tried looking for my brother's house over in San Jose, like so far away, and zooming、oh, right in.、Yeah. You know, it's like that. That's the house. That's the house. That's yeah. That's the one there. Yeah. Well, this is a, a rather lovely story of a woman who was grieving the loss of her mother, and she decided that she would just go on Google Street View and just like take a look at her her mother's. Home, home, just、yeah. on the off chance, maybe there'll be a picture of her.、Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you know when when the Google van comes round and it's taking its pictures. You know, we, we, you you get pictures of of people who happen to be sort of there on the street or outside their house. And and there she was. She found、um, two images of her mother busily gardening on her front porch. Aww. And she was、uh, so moved. She posted the images on the Facebook group called Breaking News Commune. And wrote, "Mom, I've looked for you for so long, but it turns out you've been at home all along." <laughs> Mom, it's nothing. We're all doing very well. I just miss you.、Um, many netizens, it says here, were moved to tears. The first comment says, "There are onions." Which is, <laughs> is is that is that a、That's、is that a way people, people say that in Chinese? Like, yes, they、like, do. Oh, I'm I'm about to cry. Yeah. Okay.、Right. I wasn't sure if it, if that was the case or whether it was just she inter- was just pointing out that her mother was growing onions、uh, on the front porch. No, that's Taiwanese that. internet speak for okay, you. Okay, that's good.、Yeah. That's good. In fact, your mom has always been by your side. Best wishes. Seeing this makes me very sad. I can't find my dad. I only see the car my dad used to drive, parked in front of the front door. Others lamented that Google Maps Street View could not go back further in time, or keep a permanent archive. Someone said, "I found out about this method too late. I can't find my grandfather and grandmother, and I can't find my deceased dog." Oh, okay. Okay, a man in the northern port city of Geelong has been arrested for stealing. Women's shoes. Shirley, tell us more about this. Yeah, we're talking about 42-year-old man surnamed Chen and、uh, from Jilong City.、Uh, he's been arrested for stealing 868 pairs of women's shoes from more than 33 victims. Oh, the same 33 victims. What a shock! It was actual、oh, people. Yeah, yeah.、Wow. Over、so、the course, is, so of, that's creepy now. I mean, oh is, yeah, well yeah, from people. 800 pairs of shoes. That's that's like Imelda Marcos's entire collection. <sighs> 
Yeah, I think she had like 700. Anyway. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, Mr. No, Chen no, no. has been... Uh, the 1980s called, they want their Melvin Marcos <laughs> shoe joke, shoe collection jokes back. Sorry, Shirley, yes, do go yes, on. Yes, I know, really. Okay, so Mr. Chen, uh, he, you know, stole these shoes over the course of five years in the northern city of Jilong. And um, so what happened? He just uh, developed a strange liking for women's shoes. And uh, he said that whenever he sees women's shoes in the shoe rack outside of his neighbor's apartments uh, that captures his fancy, he would steal them and add them to his bizarre menagerie of feminine footwear. So after receiving repeated reports of shoe thefts, um, police began to an investigation and they zeroed in on Mr. Chen. Now, what was it that, uh, that made him a suspect? Um, I, I get had the neighbors sort of say we think it might be this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that that was one thing too. So basically, um, it was back in April twenty fourth this year that the police got a search warrant and uh, they entered his apartment and found on the floor, in the wardrobe, in the cabinet, in the, on the desk, and even on his bed, covered with a total of one thousand seven hundred thirty six women's shoes. Hmm. So I wonder where he slept. It sounds um, like mental illness. Yes, yes. Um, so then uh, he claimed that he collected all the shoes after they had been tossed out for recycling initially. That's mm-hmm. what he claimed. But but then, um, you know, the police didn't buy into his explanation. So he said he began this fetish in 2013 and um, he would just take them home. Uh, he lives by doing odd, odd jobs. Uh, he never had a stable job. And uh, he tried to stay away from being caught by like, you know, taking the stairs late at night and avoiding the uh, the security cameras. So his family members told the police that they thought he was selling shoes and that they never questioned him. So, so um, he was doing that for a living, like selling them. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what he thought, right? Uh, that's what they thought. Anyway, so the Jilong District Court, um, you know, uh, ruled that uh, his theft uh, has endangered the public order of the community and the safety of the property of his residents. And uh, he's... Um, taken to the uh, um, to the psychiatric ward um, and uh, considered as mental illness but uh, um, he's been j- sentenced to six months in prison and fined uh, five thousand eight hundred dollars for eight hundred sixty seven counts of theft so um, seven hundred ninety one pairs of shoes have yet to be found to return mm. to their owners but that's it Oof. well hope good luck with finding them and uh I mean, it took uh, it took the prince. You know, he had to go all over the kingdom. That was just to return one shoe. Hmm. Um, so to get uh, like seven hundred pairs back to their owners, that's uh, going to take a while. Well, that's all we've got time for for today's here in Taiwan. Do stay around for Stroke of Light, Eye on China, and Chinese to Go. We will be back at the end of the hour to bring you one more thing. But till then, I'm Charlie Starrer. I'm Shirley Lin. I'm John Ventria. Stay tuned. Stroke of Light, a portrait of Taiwan through the eyes of painters, sculptors, filmmakers, and photographers. Welcome to Stroke of Light. I'm Jake Chan. Last week, 
We took a look at the work of Chinese photographer Luo Dan, who traveled across the many cities and provinces of China to record the people of different backgrounds and cultures, as well as various types of landscapes, both in modern, densely populated metropolitans like Beijing and Shanghai, and in distant, barren and rural areas. Luo Dan managed to capture such a large variety in his subjects. Because he was constantly moving. In fact, as we mentioned in last week's show, he walked, drove, hitchhiked across China twice, from east to west, and a second time around from north to south, traversing more than ten thousand kilometers in total. And today, we'll be looking at his other body of work, which is a drastic departure both in terms of subject matter. And in his approach, instead of moving, this time Luo Dan had stayed in one village for over three years. And instead of photographing a large number of people, he took his time and got to know every single person in depth before framing them in his shots. This group of photographs is titled "Sugu," or "Simple Song." Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. This is a sentence from the Epistle to Romans, a volume in the New Testament of Bible. It perfectly summarizes the spirit of Luo's subjects, the Li Su people, an ethnic group who lives in the remote village in China's northwestern province of Yunnan. Seventy percent of the people in the village are devout Christians. This series, is I in Yunnan, This ethnic group, Luo Dan says, has been relatively isolated from the rest of the world. The area they inhabit is called the Nujiang Lisu Autonomous Prefecture. And most of Li Su people live in a three hundred some kilometer long gorge. There is only one way in and out, so those from outside the world can't really easily reach them, and vice versa. Christianity was brought about to the village by a group of evangelical priests hundreds of years ago. And because the village is basically cut off from the rest of the world, the inhabitants have largely maintained their traditions and lifestyle. It is as if time has stopped just in this area and in nowhere else. And seeing these photos is an experience that brings us, the viewers, to a different place at a different time. In one photo. We see two young women, fully dressed in the traditional Li Su costumes, sitting together, leaning on one another, and holding each other's hands. One of them looks straight at the camera lens, and the other girl looks away. In any other photograph of such arrangement, we would have been attracted at first glance by the women's costumes, since they really are so different from what we're used to see, with all the large. Oddly shaped buttons and the peculiar handmade details. However, in the case of this photo, 
what jumps out at me at first is their looks, their facial expressions. These two young ladies exude this supreme sense of calmness and peacefulness, as if they are one with their surroundings, including the grass that they're sitting on, and the mountains in the backdrop. Otherworldly, in every sense of the word. Keep looking through the photos, and it becomes increasingly clear to me that the spiritual core of these people is truly something else. They don't just live in a different physical location with different lifestyles. Their pace of life, in a sense that they are entirely devoted and are at peace with their surroundings, is something that we don't much see in our everyday life. Hopping on and off buses, walking in and out of offices or Starbucks, these are the scenes that are more representative of what actually goes on in our lives these days. We constantly see people moving, rushing, staring at their phones, and chasing after the latest and the shiniest. And in turn, as we are immersed in this culture and in this pace of life. We inevitably become copies of everyone else. We are the products of the big machines, constantly rushed and distracted, while not having much of a clue about what we're actually wanting. In a sense, these village people that Luo Dan has captured are not just different. Their way of living is completely opposite to ours. According to Luo's account. They have very little in the way of material possession, and they mostly relies on farming and hunting to feed the members of the village. Despite their limited possession, or perhaps because of it, they are extremely devoted to building their spiritual world. Every Sunday, without fail, all the Christians in the village dress up in full costume. And attend the local church session. During the time that Luo had spent with the villagers, he found that the villagers rarely waste their time on bickering or gossips. Other than talking about their daily work, these people spend a significant portion of their time holding discussions on topics that are related to spirituality. In their everyday conversations, while doing their daily tasks. They constantly search for ways to elevate their spirits and get closer to God. Their elevated spirituality is seen in every one of the gestures and motions, which is carried out with the utmost care, respect, and attention. In one photo, a middle-aged man is seen standing next to a wooden pole. Like most other subjects in the photos, he's dressed in modest clothing. And looking solemnly at an old, decrepit bell hanging off a clothing line. As it turns out, he is the bellman in the village. In another photo, a hunter is seen standing next to a wall, carrying a heavy backpack, holding up a wooden crossbow in his right hand. He looks into the distance, not with any kind of hope or aggression. Nor can we tell how he feels about the trophies that he brought about in this day. He was just there, completely immersed in the moment, 
and at peace with what he has. Looking through the photos, and it is becoming more and more clear to me that the state in which these people live in is something bigger than themselves. It is something that we could all, probably to different degrees, aspire to. 虽然说表面上我们的经济在飞速的发展，我们的物质在飞速的改善，但是就是说在人的那种精神层面上，我们其实。罗丹 says that this group of photographs is a response to his earlier works, to the photos that he traveled across China to capture. Those earlier photos captured the many faces of people, in the many different landscapes during a time of rapid economical growth and transition. Buildings get torn down to make place for new ones to be built. People leave their homes to seek for better opportunities in bigger cities. And while the country has developed rapidly, and people have benefited financially from this growth, Rodan says. There is something missing in terms of values and faith. In a sense, we're not just seeing a group of photos; we are seeing a photographer's inward reflection on the state of his country and his citizens. If, in his earlier photos, he traveled across China to see the many faces of people and of cities, then in this current group of photos, he stopped. He didn't just physically stop in a village; he stopped that incessant, almost meaningless pace to chase after something that is vain. And instead, he began to look inwards to search for the things of true value. And in the daily life of the Li Su people, in a remote gorge, Luodan seems to have found a sense of inner peace. Much like the Bible verse suggests. Peace lies in one's gratefulness in all situations, be it joy or sorrow, bliss or tribulation. Thank you for listening to Stroke of Light. I'm Jake Chen. On China, first-hand perspectives on a quickly changing society. Hello and welcome to Ion China. I am Natalie So. Today, I'm honored to have with me a top official in the Central Tibetan Administration that governs the Tibetan community in exile. 
Kedar Akastan is the Chief Resilience Officer and Senior Advisor to the President of the Central Tibetan Administration, or CTA. He also served for three years as the representative of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and the CTA to North America. Today and the next few weeks, he will tell us about the Tibetan community in exile. Kedar tells us first about his role as Chief Resilience Officer. First of all, I just wanted to say thank you for uh, having me here, and uh, hello to all the listeners of uh, Radio Taiwan International. Yeah, I'm based in Dharamsala, India, and I work with the Central Tibetan Administration, which is really like the Tibetan government in exile. And my role there is primarily to help um, work on the long-term sustainability of our administration. So I don't know how familiar, you know, all your listeners are with the situation, but when we came over in 1959, along with uh, the Dalai Lama and uh, 80,000 Tibetans fleeing Chinese uh, invasion and occupation. The first thing that uh, His Holiness and our elders did was we had to, besides uh, carrying on this freedom struggle, we really had to take care of our people. So thanks to the government of India, we were able to resettle uh, 80,000 plus Tibetans. Uh, So we had to uh, open schools, uh, clinics, uh, and plus rebuilt a lot of the cultural institutions that were destroyed uh, in Tibet. So today, if people have a chance to visit uh, our settlements in India, uh, we have uh, Tibetans living in over 45 different settlements all across India and Nepal. And uh, some of the great monasteries and nunneries uh, which uh, no longer exist in Tibet today or if they do, it's really just uh, a shell of its former selves. Uh, it's all there in India now. Uh, you know, we have monks, we have nuns. And the uh, idea really is to uh, take this all back to Tibet one day and so that uh, we can preserve and, and promote and sustain uh, whatever we have in the meantime. So as a, as a chief resilience officer of the Central Tibetan Administration, uh, the key role is really how do you sustain all that? Uh, and this is not just financially I'm speaking of. It's also there's a very strong human capital uh, component to this. So as part of my daily responsibilities, I work very closely with uh, the president of the CTA, who is our uh, elected political leader. And again, I have to share a little bit of a, a recent history uh, with regards to uh, the Tibetan people. In 2011, After almost uh, 360 plus years of having a form of government where the Dalai Lama was both the political as well as the spiritual leader of the Tibetan people, in 2011, as another huge step forward in his uh, quest and in his um, vision of promoting democracy within the Tibetan community uh, and leading Tibetan people down a path of uh, democracy, he took that uh, very historic step of stepping back politically. So in 2011, uh, he delinked the church and the state. Oh, that's a big step. Yes, and transferred over all the political responsibilities over to an elected leadership. And right now we have Dr. Losang Sangye. He's a Harvard Law graduate, um, and he is serving his second term, uh, and each term is for five years. So I work very closely with our president, as well as with our uh, Council of Ministers and senior leadership uh, within the Tibetan administration 
uh, on issues of you know how how do we uh, achieve our key goal in exile, which is uh, besides restoring freedom in Tibet and for the Tibetan people, but how do we also uh, achieve long-term self-reliance uh, so that uh, we have the resources, both human and financial, to carry on the struggle. Uh, and we've been in exile now for almost 60 years, and uh, the Tibet issue can be resolved you know, within the next five years, or it could take another 50 years. So how do we prepare both for the short term and the long term? Uh, so that's really, uh, it's a huge responsibility. And, uh, and there's, you know, it's, it's hard to do it uh, in any uh, defined period of time. But, you know, we, we are kind of steadily um, uh, planning, strategizing, and trying to come up with some kind of a roadmap so that whoever comes after us, you know, in terms of uh, taking on the leadership of this community and this movement, they can actually work off, you know, some kind of a, a roadmap, some kind of a strategy. So do you also govern all the other diaspora around the world? We're mostly focused on India and Nepal and, and the China region. Well, naturally, the Tibetan experience is very unique. Uh, we are almost like uh, uh, a virtual state. Uh, and mm -hmm. we're also in the process of actually building and carrying out the responsibilities of a, of a state. So the Tibetan community in exile... Uh, when we first came into exile in the early 60s, it was mostly all based in India and Nepal and some in Bhutan. But over the last 20 years or so, there's been you know uh, steady migration. So now today, the exile population, which uh, numbers around 160, 70,000 Tibetans, about uh, a quarter of those, uh, and close to, you know... Um, slowly getting to almost half of it, they are all now residing in uh, almost 30-plus uh, countries across the world. We have a big hub in uh, North America, in Europe, um, and also down in Australia. So the way the Tibetan administration operates is uh, we provide a number of services and programs for our people. Um, but uh, as, as people migrate, as the community becomes more virtual, then uh, it also raises additional challenges for the Tibetan leadership. You know, how do you continue to keep this community together uh, in in a period in an environment where it's getting very virtual now? You know, you you know from a from a physical center in India now, you know, you have people in so many countries. So yeah, these are all some of the challenges, but also I think opportunities because what we lose. Uh, that's in some ways compensated by uh, also some major gains, which is uh, people are getting more educated. So now the, the next generation of uh, young Tibetans who are being raised in, in the West, especially, uh, extremely educated, very talented, and I think we just need to make sure that they continue to stay connected to the community and, um, and hopefully uh, they'll be in a position to you know, uh, serve in uh, leadership positions. Well, that's that's very exciting, just like yeah. you, right? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you were born in uh, India, and you were educated in a Western missionary school, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm a first generation Tibetan, uh, born and raised in exile, um, and uh, I went to um, Jesuit missionary boarding schools, uh, and then after I finished my bachelor's uh, in India, I had a chance to go abroad to the U.S. And after working for you know three years for an NGO working mostly on uh, human rights work, um, I then um, 
joined a, a graduate school uh, in Boston, did my master's, and then from there on, uh, I I worked for a number of um, large private foundations uh, doing you know philanthropy and uh, social change work. Well, that's wonderful. And now you're serving your people. In a yes. Yes, keeping yeah. them resilient. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. I'm trying to, you know, just uh, use the experience and and you know and uh, the network that you've built and and, and see how that can be you know, connected back to the Tibetan community and the Tibetan cause. That was Kedar Akastan, the Chief Resilience Officer of the Central Tibetan Administration, which governs the Tibetan community in exile. Next week, I speak with Kedar about how the next Dalai Lama will be chosen. Thanks for tuning in to Ion China. I'm Natalie So. special series on Chinese to go, which is jointly produced by the Chinese Language Center of Wenzhou Ursuline University of Languages and Radio Taiwan International. Fitting in in Chinese. Episode 77, Grammar. Dialogue. 你既然那么喜欢,就买吧. Since you like it so much, then buy it. 可是我想再找找比这个更合适的. But... I'd like to look for a better one. 这个跟昨天那个比起来便宜多了。Compared to yesterday's, this one is a lot cheaper. 除了价钱之外,还有更多原因要考虑。Aside from the price, there are many other factors to consider. 我从来没见过比你更细心的买家。I've never seen a shopper as thorough or picky as you. 既然要买,就要货比三家,才不会后悔。Since I want to buy it, then I want to comparison shop, so I won't have regrets later. 网路跟实际商店比起来,有什么差别? What's the difference between online shopping and going to a real store? 除了价钱的差别之外,还有方便,服务上的不同。Aside from the prices, there's a difference in convenience and service. 语法,grammar, 比,更,摩托车好骑吗? Are motorcycles easy to ride? 摩托车比脚踏车 
更好骑。Motorcycles are easier than bicycles. 现在的工作好找吗 ？Is it easy to find a job now? 现在的工作比以前更难找。It's harder to find work now than it was before. 既然就你真的没有别的女朋友吗 ？You really don't have another girlfriend. 既然你问了。我就告诉你吧。Well, since you've asked, I'll tell you. 既然已经买了，就用吧。Since you've already bought it, then use it. 跟比起来，台湾的天气怎么样 ？How is Taiwan's weather? 跟德国比起来，热多了。Compared to Germany, it's a lot hotter. This machine, how is it? How is this machine? 跟手工比起来，方便多了。Compared to doing it by hand, it's a lot more convenient. 除了之外，还有，你们家有几辆车？ How many cars does your family have? 除了这辆车之外，还有一辆。In addition to this one, we have one more. 我可以去哪里领钱？除了银行之外，还可以去邮局领钱。Besides banks, you can also withdraw money from the post office. 摩托车好骑吗？摩托车比脚踏车更好骑。你真的没有别的女朋友吗？既然你问了，我就告诉你吧。你既然那么喜欢，就买吧。可是我想再找找比这个更合适的。这个。跟昨天那个比起来，便宜多了。除了价钱之外，还有更多原因要考虑。我从来没见过比你更细心的买家。既然要买，就要货比三家，才不会后悔。网络跟实际商店比起来，有什么差别？除了价钱的差别之外，还有方便、服务上的不同Thanks for being with us here today on Radio Taiwan International. Don't forget, you can email us. The address is rti at rti.org.tw with any questions or comments you may have. 
Well, I'm Charlie Starrer back in the studio with John Van Trieste and Shirley Lynn. We're going to leave you with one more thing. John, why is now a good time to come and visit Taiwan? A couple of reasons. For one thing, Taiwanese uh, airline EVA Air has won the best long haul airline Asia award. That's put out uh, by AirlineRatings.com. They've also won the website's uh, they've also won eighth place in the website's top 10 airlines in the world for 2019, which I think is getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but there you go. Um, it says that uh, the, the editor-in-chief of the website says that uh, there's new aircraft, new routes, more cabin innovations, and that's what keeps the airline in the, in the top 10. And uh, it says in this article here that the website rates and monitors uh, 435 airlines globally, and I'm sure that there are some terrible airlines out there, but I think the eighth in the world is very good. Very good. So there's indeed. a lot of stiff competition out there. Um, so there's that. And then also, if you're in, once you get to Taiwan, there's a, a couple of interesting deals on. One is from the Taiwan High Speed Rail, and this is a, a cooperation plan that will involve 19 luxury hotels. And the idea is to provide discount, warmer winter holiday packages for people trying to get away from the cold as especially up here in the north it does start to cool down a bit mm. uh on october 33rd uh, on october 31st the taiwan tourism bureau i think we talked about this said that it was going to roll out a, a program that would include encouraging people to go to places like hualien taidong and mm. so, were they sort of putting it alongside with activities right. like runs or, or kayaking and these these sorts of things and so the high speed rail is officially announced that it's going to be involved in this so i guess that they're part of the plan now and that's uh, interesting because it doesn't go down that side of the island it doesn't but the <laughs> other side i mean there's also places like Kaohsiung and that are involved as right, well right. and uh and of course you can't like you mentioned there's you can't get everywhere that they're advertising by rail, but most of the way there, for instance, Kanding on the southern end of the island is reachable most, a uh, good part of the way by high-speed rail. Well, it's funny, mm -hmm. it, it takes you, uh, yes, it takes you an hour and a half to, to, to travel the, uh, what, uh, 300 yeah. kilometers or so from Taipei to Kaohsiung, and then it takes you another two hours to travel the <laughs> 50 kilometers to Kanding. It's worth it. It's, it is a, a bit of a hike, but, um, the, you know, the, the plans include a one-night stay in five-star accommodation, and I must admit that I, it took me a couple of times reading the sentence to understand it. Punctuation is important, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, it says, so the deals in place include return travel from Taipei to Kunding and a one-night stay in five-star accommodation, including breakfast. And that goes for close to 2,000 NT per person. At first, I thought they were saying the breakfast was, was close 2000? to $60 US. Mm -hmm. And I went, uh, in the land of the $3 breakfast, I'm not sure how that's going to go down. Uh, also, if uh, that's not quite your thing, there's also, there is a uh, hot spring package on. This is in conjunction with the 2018 Taipei International Travel Fair. And that's going to be taking place at the end of the month at the Nangang Exhibition Center here in Taipei. Another destination that's being advertised as a part of this deal is the Flora Expo that's going on in Taichung at the moment. I was just going to say that. Um, yeah, that'll be running through the winter, won't it? So, yes. I mean, that's definitely warmer than Taipei, I guess. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of, I'm sure, greenhouses and things there as well. It, it is a Flora Expo after all. Uh, and I think generally when you, Taichung and further south during the wintertime, tend to have much nicer weather than we do yeah. up here in oh, Taipei. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, they're in the tropical part of, of the island. just short of it, yeah. So, um, again, there's uh, deals including free accommodation when you purchase your tickets. Uh, there's hotel room upgrades. There's senior citizen discounts, weekend and holiday discounts, a whole lot of other stuff going on as well. So uh, you can fly to Taiwan in style and travel around with some nice discounts.
Well, that's all we've got time for for today's programmes. Thanks so much for being with us. Do join us again tomorrow when our programmes will include Taiwan Today, live from Taipei, and another edition of Here in Taiwan. But for today, I'm Charlie Storer. On behalf of all of us here at RTI, wishing you a very happy rest of your day ahead. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also, visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.